teachers are in the back of the room there. If you are staying in the room with us, I do want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word, however you can get it. Uh, pull out your Bible first. If you don't have one, uh, look off a neighbor's Bible. If you don't have a neighbor, pull out your phone. If you don't have a phone, it should be on the screens behind us, but we need our eyes on the scriptures this morning. As I said last week, and as we entered into this new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, we observed last week that Jesus is teaching his followers what life in his kingdom is like, what life in the kingdom is like. If you've ever wanted to know what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven, this is what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving us an orientation on the kingdom's culture. He's showing us how we can begin living now as we will live when his kingdom is fully consummated at his return. We're entering the body of the sermon this morning. So last week was sort of the end of the introduction to the sermon. The introduction to the sermon are the Beatitudes and then verses 13 through 16. The body of the sermon begins here in Matthew 5, 17, takes us all the way to chapter 7, verse 12. And then from verse 13 to the end of chapter 7, we have sort of some concluding pictures that Jesus gives us. But the body of the sermon begins right here in Matthew 5, 17. Now, over the next five weeks or so, Jesus is going to be taking up some of the most prominent teachings found in the law. We're going to see it uh, over and over again over the next four to five weeks. Um, now, he's going to take these teachings that are found in the law, and then he's going to teach us how kingdom citizens should approach them. So I say that to say all of what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 21 through 48 hinges on what he says here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And we know this because we're going to see a particular refrain show up again and again over the next few weeks. We're going to hear Jesus say two things. He's going to say first, you've heard it said. And then he's going to say, but I say to you. And after Jesus says, you've heard it said, he's going to reference something from the law. And then after he says, but I say to you, he's going to offer a newer and deeper approach. Now, this is important because it is going to sound like Jesus is saying his teaching now replaces the law. That's what it sounds like. You've heard it said, this is the way it used to be. But I say to you, this is the way it is now. It will be very easy to see Jesus as saying, what I am teaching you now replaces what was taught in the law. It's going to sound like Jesus' followers are now permitted to reject the Old Testament because something new has arrived in Jesus. Now, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it, uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it almost forces this tension between the law and the kingdom. Questions like, is Jesus the promised Messiah of old? Or is he a revolutionary king who has come to do something new? Is something new happening? Or is this just a continuation of the old? This is the tension that arises in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus resolves this tension in the passage we have before us. 
in three steps, Jesus shows us how the law relates to the kingdom and how kingdom citizens, his followers like us, how we are to live in relation to the law. This intersection of the law and the kingdom actually shows us what it takes to enter the kingdom. So I want, I want to be clear. This isn't just an intellectual exercise where we're trying to you know, discern the purpose of the law and the life of a Christian. There's actually a lot on the line here. And that's how I noticed a lot of people using this passage as I was studying. It's, it turns into this whole discussion of the purpose of the law. And, and that, that is a part of it. And we're actually going to dig into some of that. But we need to see the stakes. Do you see what Jesus is saying? What's on the line in this passage is who gets in the kingdom and who doesn't. Who gets in the kingdom of heaven? Who doesn't get in the kingdom of heaven? And why? That's what's on the line here. And I think the clearest way to, to see this is by working through this passage backwards. So we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to go from verse 20 and back up all the way to verse 17. And we're going to make three observations along the way. We're, we're going to see first that something greater is required. Verse 20. Something greater is required, which is rooted in, point two, something old that's still here. That's verses 18 and 19. And the something old that's still here finds fulfillment in something new that has come. Point three, verse 17. So we're going to see three things this morning. Something greater, something old, something new. And Erica said, why don't you just add something borrowed and something blue? And then... <laughs> It would just be fantastic. I, and to be honest, I, for like five seconds, I tried just, just, to, just because, you know. It's like I couldn't make it work, so uh, I had to at least say I, it was on my mind. I tried to, tried to get there. I'm that corny. Okay, uh, something greater, something old, something new. Here we go. First, something greater is required. Now, last week, don't say I didn't warn you. I warned you last week that the Sermon on the Mount is startling and uncomfortable. You'll be shocked, you'll be startled, you'll, you'll get nervous, or you'll just tune it out completely. Because if you take it seriously, you're, you're not going to enjoy parts of this initially. And I told you also, we're going to be tempted as soon as we read a verse to defend Jesus, to uh, explain him away. We meet our first uncomfortable teaching early in the sermon in verse 20. Jesus says something in verse 20 that seems initially utterly impossible. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, what's on the line? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's not a verse you, you want to have stitched on a throw pillow. You know, not one you want on your coffee mug in the morning. It's, it's startling. It's It's uncomfortable. If our righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, we have no hope of entering the kingdom of heaven. Say it another way. We must have a greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees in order to get in the kingdom. It's an entry requirement. It's a prerequisite in order to get in. 
Now listen, we tend to have a very negative view of the scribes and Pharisees, and for good reason, because of the way that they opposed Jesus throughout his ministry, and especially at the end. Jesus criticized, and he pronounced judgment on the scribes and Pharisees more than any other group. So when we hear something like this, it's tempting for us to think that having a greater righteousness than the Pharisees would be easy. But let's make sure we understand who the scribes and Pharisees were. The scribes were Israel's chief interpreters of what we call the Old Testament, which means, essentially, they knew their Bibles more than anybody else. You think you know your Bible very well? A scribe of Israel knew it better than you do. The Pharisees, they were Israel's chief, we could say, practitioners of the Old Testament. They sought to apply the law to their lives and to the lives of the people unlike anyone else. In other words, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who obeyed Scripture or knew Scripture more or better than a scribe or a Pharisee. Paul makes the same point. He makes the same point. Do you remember Philippians 3? We just went through it not too long ago. In Philippians 3, Paul was trying to give an example of of, uh, how he could have Uh, confidence in the flesh if anyone could have confidence in their own righteousness I could how does he make that point here's what he said I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh I have more here's why Paul says he says I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law Paul says a Pharisee That's his example when he's trying to say, I have more reason than anyone to boast in my own righteousness. Why? Because I was a Pharisee. This shows us the degree of the Pharisee's righteousness. So for those who were sitting at the foot of the Mount of Beatitudes listening to Jesus as he's he's giving this sermon for the first time, they must have a righteousness that exceeds That of the scribes and Pharisees? To those who were listening to that, they would have been utterly shocked, dismayed. I can imagine their heads turning, a low mumble starting to fill the the countryside there as they're they're listening to Jesus tell them something that's utterly impossible for them to do. To be greater than the Pharisees and scribes when it comes to righteousness? That's like suggesting that in order to be the quarterback of a football team, you have to have a skill that's greater than Tom Brady. It's greater than Tom Brady. Not just that you're good. Not that you're a good quarterback. You you have to exceed the greatest quarterback. So how do we make sense of this? What does Jesus mean that a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees is a prerequisite for entry into his kingdom? Well, it depends. It depends, first of all, on what Jesus means by exceeds. In what sense must our righteousness be greater? Because when we use comparative words like that, they, they can go in any number of directions. I, I, you know, you guys know me, I debate a lot about basketball and debate about who's the greatest basketball player of all time. And it would be, it's amazing. It depends on how you talk. What do you mean? What do you mean by greatest? Do you mean by most skilled? Do you mean by bet? Like, is, are we talking about quality here? Are we talking about just body of work? So when you're using a comparative term like great, we need to understand in what way are we using it. So there are a couple options here. Option number one, Jesus could mean he expects us to have a righteousness that's greater in degree. 
It could mean that we need to be more righteous than the Pharisees. We need to obey the word of God more faithfully than they did. We need to be more devoted to the written law than they were. And listen, I know we got some devoted, devoted folks in here who've never missed a quiet time. Like, I, I know. I know, I know y'all are in here somewhere, right? Don't raise your hand. I know. It only fueled the pride that's probably already just creeping in there. But I know. I know we got some devoted folks. And, and your commitment to the law, it might rival the Pharisees. But I can just about guarantee that you would not come close to matching their concern for obedience to the law. If Jesus means our obedience to the letter of the law must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, meaning that we have to obey more, often, faithfully, then the scribes and Pharisees, we don't have much hope of entering the kingdom of heaven. We don't have much hope if it's greater in degree. But I believe that Jesus is saying that it must exceed their righteousness. It must be greater in terms of the kind of righteousness that's in view. Jesus seems to be saying something like this. The righteousness that gets a person into the kingdom is a righteousness of a superior kind to that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's not talking about the same kind of righteousness, just better, just, just more of. It's you have to have a righteousness that is completely different from that of the scribes and Pharisees, a superior kind of righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus demands and requires is of a totally different kind of the Pharisees. It's a different species of righteousness altogether on a different plane of existence. This is what we see. There is a kind of righteousness that Jesus rejects, and there is a kind of righteousness that Jesus requires. And the kind of righteousness Jesus rejects, we can call pharisaical righteousness. Pharisaical righteousness. The Pharisees were most concerned about the letter of the law, while more often than not neglecting the spirit of the law. To be sure, they possessed an outer righteousness. By all accounts, the scribes and Pharisees were righteous. If you looked at their lives, what you saw on the outside was faithfulness and obedience to the Torah. Their forms were right, but their motivations were wrong. Their actions were technically in keeping with the law, but their hearts were dead, dead to God and dead to others. This was the center of Jesus' criticism of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. And in that place, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They appeared righteous on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of hypocrisy. On the outside, they appeared to keep the law. On the inside, they were truly lawless. This kind of righteousness is foreign to the kingdom of heaven. And there's a real danger 
a real danger in desiring to appear righteous before other people. That desire in your heart to appear righteous to others needs to be crucified and it needs to be crucified today. Because it will produce a pharisaical righteousness in you. And if that is the righteousness you're clinging to, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's very easy for us to fall into this pattern. It happens when we become obsessed with the letter of the law. When we start obsessing over the technicalities of Scripture. That's why, notice, don't, I'm, listen, I'm not relaxing anything. Listen to what Jesus himself says. That this is building, this is preparing us for his future teaching on anger and lust and divorce and oaths. Listen to what he says. That's why he's going to teach that in the kingdom, it is not enough to just not commit murder. That's someone who's obsessed with the technicalities and obsessed with the letter of the law. You walk around full of bitterness and full of hatred in your heart for another person. But you turn to the scriptures and it says, do not murder. And you say, got it. Not going to kill him. Won't happen. And Jesus says, that's not enough. That's an appearance of righteousness. That's an appearance of your keeping law. And you're totally missing the point. The whole point of do not murder is you should not feel about another person that, in such a way that would lead you to even consider ending their life. So you have to be aware of anger. You have to put anger to death in your life. More, more so than just, just avoiding this, this letter of the law, sin of murder. You should avoid anger. We can't just say, well, at least I didn't cheat. That's what, the, that's what it says. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. Didn't do it. I didn't commit adultery. That's letter of the law. That's pharisaical righteousness. We can't say that if our hearts are filled with lust. What good is it to give money to the church if all it does is fill our hearts with pride? M- many examples we could give. No. If our righteousness is like that, One thing I can promise you because Jesus says it, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot's on the line, I told you. There's there's pharisaical righteousness. But there's also a kind of righteousness that Jesus requires. And we can call that kingdom righteousness. Kingdom righteousness. Now, in Jesus and through his spirit, we can now live according to not just, not the letter of the law primarily, but the spirit of the law, meaning that we need more than an outer righteousness that that gives the impression to other people that we're good with God. No, we need an inner righteousness that flows from the inside out. We need a righteousness that begins with a transformed heart. Kingdom righteousness doesn't obsess over the wording of the law, but it's actually more concerned with the purpose of the law. And that's why we say, well, yeah, okay, yeah, of course, like do not commit murder. But what, what is happening in my heart that would ever lead me to that place? This bitterness that I'm harboring, this resentment that I feel, this anger that I feel to another person, I'm not okay with that. That's the part that's not okay. I'm, I'm not just going to be content with, well, I didn't commit murder. No, this anger needs to be put to death in my heart. That's kingdom righteousness. You see, when we look for loopholes in Scripture, 
we typically are looking for justification for sin. But sometimes we look for loopholes that will allow us to appear righteous while our hearts are actually withering away on the inside. The Bible says, pray for one another. Kingdom righteousness says, I am going to pray for each other, but I'm also going to make sure that in the course of praying for one another, I'm not uh, venturing into gossip about someone else. The Bible says, rebuke one another when you are found to be in sin. Kingdom righteousness says, yes, that's important. I also need to care about the manner in which that I approach the situation. Do I, do I sound like Jesus, full of truth and love and grace and mercy and compassion? Kingdom righteousness always goes a step further. Jesus' teaching on divorce is a great example, a great example. The law makes a provision for divorce. It does. You can find it. It makes a provision for divorce. So if you find yourself in frequent conflict with your spouse, I'm telling you, listen, if you wanted to have a pharisaical righteousness, this is what you could do. You could actually turn to the Bible and find justification for ending your marriage. Now, I mean, you could also find a conflicting passage that you would have trouble with, but you could find something in the Old Testament, in the law, that makes a provision generally for divorce. The Pharisees, they actually tried to trap Jesus on this very question. In Matthew 19, they ask him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And they're trying to catch him because they are obsessed with the technicalities in the law. They're obsessed with the letter of the law, what it actually says on paper, so they can trap Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? You see what Jesus is doing? He doesn't even go to the, to the actual law that's in question. He's like, why is that law in place? Because of what marriage is. And so he, I'm not going to preach a sermon on marriage, but he, he goes on and he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus' new teaching on divorce focuses more on what? The heart. More on the spirit of the law than the letter of the law. Listen, a greater righteousness is required. Because in the kingdom, we must be truly righteous. Not just apparently righteous. Now this raises a few important questions. If the Pharisees' way of doing things just doesn't cut it, then shouldn't we leave the law behind completely for newer and better things? Should we just pursue authenticity in our lives? Is that what Jesus is after? Just be your most authentic self. And as long as you're real and you're authentic, that's how you get in the kingdom. Is that what he means? How do we get in on kingdom righteousness? Well, we got to back up. we got to back up in the passage and see that something old is still here. We got to think about the law itself because Jesus takes us there. If we require a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees and scribes to enter the kingdom of heaven, then how do we get it? Jesus tells us in verses 18 and 19. For truly I say to you, 
until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the law cannot be neglected because the law hasn't been abolished. The law must be observed. It must be obeyed in some way. The law must not be changed. It must not be ignored. You you can abolish the law as soon as heaven and earth pass away. That's that's Jesus' point. The moment that heaven and earth passes away, you can get rid of the law from your life. The point here is that you can't. The law figures prominently in our pursuit of kingdom righteousness. Now we need, we need to hear exactly what Jesus says before we rush to defend him or rush to explain him away. Well, he doesn't really mean that. Here's what it means. This is what we know. I learned this from Martin Luther. Well, let's let Jesus speak before Luther does. Okay? So, so this is what he says. If you relax, even what? The least, even the least of these commandments, and you teach others to do the same, you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And if you do even the least of the commandments and teach them, you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Not going to get into the least and great in the views on that. I would love to because I have a lot of thoughts on it. We just don't have time. A couple things to observe here, though. The basic point that Jesus is making is that since the law won't pass away, you can't ignore it in your life. And if the law hasn't been abolished by Jesus, you can't personally abolish it from your life and practice. So in some sense, obedience to the law connects with your place in the kingdom. All right? We got to work through this. Is he saying that in order to get in the kingdom, in order to possess a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees, you have to obey the law? Now, a cursory reading of this passage seems to indicate that. And if so, that's, that's sort of a problem. Because if Jesus means we must obey even the least of the commandments to get in the kingdom of heaven... We turn to the scriptures and we start to look at the law itself and we start to sweat a little bit. Because as much as we would love to say, well, listen, here's what he means. He mean, when he refers to the law, he's only talking about certain parts. Of, where are you getting that? That's not what he says. Even the least of the commandments have to be, what, taught and kept, observed? What's he getting at? It's a problem. And at this point, we're prone to make one of three errors. Three errors. Number one, we're prone to fall into the trap of antinomianism. And this is what our perspective is. Well, okay. This is what Jesus is saying here. He is intentionally presenting something that is impossible. That's the point. The point is, you can't possess kingdom righteousness. The point is, you can't keep the law. You can't do it. It's impossible for you to do it, and that's supposed to be your takeaway, and then that is supposed to lead you to trust in the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And that would work if that's what Jesus was talking about here. But that's not what he's talking about. This error rightly exalts the saving power and grace of God in Jesus, but then it presents the law as something that can just be pushed aside or diminished. Error number two, legalism. You just go with it, and you say, hey, Jesus says you got to keep even the least of the commandments in order to get in the kingdom. You better get to studying the law, boys and girls. 
And you better start obeying because you got to earn your place in the kingdom. Now, this error rightly exalts the purity and goodness of the law. But then it presents it as something that can save you. Paul's infamous opponents, the Judaizers, they, they struggled with this. And then there's error number three. This is where a lot of us would fall. We say, the law is important. It is important and it can't be rejected. We also are saved by grace, not by works. So the law can't save us. But when Jesus says that we have to keep even the least of the commandments, he's only referring to the moral law. And so we we create these divisions in, in the Old Testament scriptures, in the law. And we say there is the civil law, laws, there are the ceremonial laws, and there are the moral laws. So the civil laws would be laws pertaining to the nation of Israel itself. The ceremonial laws would be uh, sacrificial rites, circumcision, various things like that. And then the moral law is like the Ten Commandments. And so we, we, you know, it makes sense, it's really neat, and we make these divisions. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. Where are we getting it from this passage? That's not, what, that's not how Jesus is using the word law. So what's going on? Here's what we need to see. Keeping the law in a way that produces kingdom righteousness implies a covenant relationship with God. And a look at the nature and purpose of the law is going to help us. First, I want you to think about the nature of the law. He's using this word a lot in this passage. What is the nature of the law? We read this passage, and we see that word over and over again. We see it, law, law, law. And when we see that word, we only think about the written commands that we find in books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And and more than that, when we see the word law, we have a particular connotation. We speak English. How is the word law used in in our culture? We think of courtrooms and lawyers and trials. that's, That's what's on our minds. But we have to remember, the English word law in Matthew 5 is a translation of a Greek word. And that Greek word is actually found in the Septuagint as a translation of a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is Torah. Torah. Now, Torah is often used to describe the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But that word, Torah, it means so much more than commands that are written on a page, just just laws on a page. Torah carries with it the sense of a covenant relationship. The Torah is the written law within the context of covenant. And in fact, that's, that's how the law as we know it was first given. If you can remember back in Exodus, God entered into a covenant with his rescued people out of Egypt. And when he entered into a covenant relationship with them to be their God and they will be his people, God descended on a mountain and he gave the law to Moses, who in turn descended the mountain himself and gave it to the people. But the law was meant to be kept after a covenant relationship with God was established. Torah outlined what life in a covenant relationship with God is like. That's the nature of the law. It implies covenant. 
And then what's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of Torah? The law was meant to set Israel apart from nations and peoples who were not in covenant with God. The law was meant to be the means by which Israel related to God and lived out his purposes on earth. We could say the law was the way for Israel to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. There's even a picture of that, of heaven meeting earth, God coming down from heaven to give the law to Moses. So by saying that we can't just toss the law to the side, Jesus is saying that God still relates to his people on the basis of covenant and still expects his people to align their lives with his will. The nature and purpose of the law have not changed. We still relate to God on the basis of a covenant relationship. Torah is not so much about following all of the written commands that you find in the Old Testament. It is about an orientation toward in relationship with God. This is where the scribes and Pharisees completely missed it. The law is not meant to become a to-do list or, or something to use to catch other people in sin. This is what the scribes and Pharisees used it for. The law was meant to draw Israel into a deeper relationship with God. And so by saying that the Torah will not be abolished, will not be rejected, and by saying that those in the kingdom of heaven must observe the Torah, Jesus is helping us see that life in the kingdom still depends on a covenant relationship with God. And the short of it is this. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if you want to possess a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees, you have to be in covenant relationship with God. It's the only way. It's the only way. And so this old way finds continuity with the new way that arrives in Jesus. And that's, that's what we're left with, this, this big question. How can we find ourselves in a covenant relationship with God? And, and how can we be sure that our orientation to the law will produce an inner righteousness and not just an outer righteousness? What needs to be done? And this is where we can praise God that something new has come. A greater righteousness is required. Something old is still here. We still have to relate to God on the basis of covenant. But something new has come. The answer to greater righteousness that is not out of sync with the law and the prophets is found only in Jesus. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How? He doesn't say. By doing what? He doesn't say. So what's the simple takeaway we have to, to uh, uh, leave with from verse 17? How are the law and prophets fulfilled? In Jesus period. One author I read this week said, it is one thing to say, as Jesus could have, I have come to do miracles as mighty as Elijah, or I have come to predict the future as clearly as Isaiah, or I have come to do miracles as astounding as Moses. 
He said, it is altogether different to claim that he himself fulfills the Torah and the prophets. But that's precisely the claim Jesus makes here. Nothing in history would ever be the same. The Torah had come to its goal. Verse 17 is the key to possess the greater righteousness of verse 20. Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, how, how did Jesus fulfill the law? I read a commentary this week that outlined nine different ways. I'm not sharing any of them with you. I'm sorry. I don't have time. I say that to say there are a lot of people who have a lot of thoughts on this. And there are a lot of answers you can give. Some of them valid. Some of them not valid. There are multiple ways that Jesus has come to do this. Two popular views I'll share. One, we can call it explanation. This view states that Jesus fulfills the law by properly interpreting it and explaining it. And they say he's come to fulfill the law, meaning no one's really understood the law until Jesus comes and he's going to explain it. I'm not too compelled. That doesn't seem too compelling to me. The other one we can call the enabling view. This view states that Jesus fulfills the law by making it possible for his followers to obey it. Have you ever heard that one? That's a little more common in church life. That when Jesus came, he made it possible for you to obey the law. And before Jesus came, it wasn't possible for you to obey the law. And they connect that to the coming of the Spirit and the new covenant and all kinds of different things. That's also not that compelling to me. Because both, both views don't really do justice with Matthew's use of the word fulfillment. Matthew actually uses this word, fulfill, in one way or another, seven different times in Matthew 1 through 4. And in each of those cases, Matthew is helping us see a pattern that finds completion in Jesus. In one way or another, Jesus is the goal of what had been said or done in the past. So Jesus came to fulfill the Torah in the sense that God's prior saving covenant work finds completion in him. The law outlined what life in God's presence should look like, but the people of Israel failed to keep it. The prophets responded to Israel's covenant failure by promising a coming Messiah and King who would bring about a new covenant. And now that Jesus has come, the wait is over. Salvation is here. The covenant is eternal. And what does this mean for us? That Jesus has come to complete all that the law and the prophets were, were teaching and pointing toward. Well, it means that Jesus is not plan B in God's plan of salvation. He's plan A. It's in continuity with the old plan of salvation. It's, it's just it's the same thing. God saves through covenant relationship. He saves on the basis of grace. Jesus is the completion of all of God's prior saving work. He was the plan all along. So all of the law and all of the prophets were pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. Something new has come. And it is not in conflict with what has come before. It is the end. It is the goal of everything we find in the law and prophets. The death and resurrection of Jesus accomplished the saving work of God. What did Jesus say from the cross? One of his last, last things that he said? It is finished. It is finished. The law is fulfilled. The prophets are fulfilled. Salvation has come by fulfilling the law and prophets. Nothing more is required. 
than the work of Jesus on our behalf. We're not waiting for another priest, prophet, or king. We're not waiting for another Messiah to come. He is the end of the law, and his end is a new beginning. Two new realities open up to us. A new relationship to the law is now possible through the Spirit. We can do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. When we don't concern ourselves with pursuing the technicalities of the law, we're more concerned with how we can bring God's kingdom to bear in every area of our lives. We're not working to earn a place in the kingdom because what could we add to fulfillment in Jesus? We don't ask, how much of my money does God say I should give? We ask, how can I reflect God's sacrificial generosity with everything he's given me? We don't ask, but who is my neighbor really? Instead, we ask, how can I love everyone in my life with the love of Jesus? His teachings throughout the Sermon on the Mount, in all the Gospels, more concerned with our hearts than specific forms of obedience. And that's because through Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, the law, which was written in stone, is now written on our hearts. And our hearts are changed. Not so that we can now obey to get in, but so that we can now live out the purposes of the law in our lives. Through Jesus, God's people can finally become what they were always meant to become, those living in covenant with God and living out those covenant expectations. We can possess an inner righteousness because through the fulfillment of the Torah, Jesus has made it possible for us to be given new hearts of flesh. That's because something else is now open to us. Because Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Sure, a greater righteousness is possible, but that's because a new covenant with God is possible. A new relationship with God through covenant is ours because Jesus fulfilled the law. His fulfillment of the law means that everyone trusting in him has been reconciled to God through a new covenant that we find prophesied in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The end of your guilt, the end of sin's reign of terror over your life, the end of separation from God is found in Jesus. The beginning of true and inner righteousness, the beginning of life eternal, the beginning of a life that reflects the very character of God is found in Jesus. Jesus. He has done everything required for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. He is the fulfillment. So it is finished. Rest 
in him.